Hello, friends. My name is Steve, and we're here today to discuss all things House of Chains. We have some some friends here that we've been reading the books with, and of course, the man himself, uh, Stephen Erickson. So we'll go ahead and start off with some introductions, and we will be getting into House of Chains and all the previous books. So if you have not read House of Chains yet, uh, you know, tune out and come back later. Uh, don't spoil yourself. So, uh, Layla, will you start us off with some introductions? Sure. Um, I'm Layla Goshi. I'm a professor of English uh, in St. Louis, Missouri right now. Um, I have uh, just launched a web magazine called Bellity Magazine and um, just just excited for that. I'm going to delve into some fantasy sci-fi on uh, cultural levels, how different cultures view fantasy and sci-fi. Awesome. Me. And Mr. Erickson? Ah, well, uh, Stephen Erickson, um, presently writing uh, the second book of uh, the Witness Trilogy. So I'm a little bit ahead of you guys, obviously. Um, <laughs> and I think I've got about nine chapters left. So uh, my initial plan was to be finished in the spring, and I should be able to reach that quite easily, I think. So that's good news. Also, I'm working on a book um, on writing. So that's a, I'm kind of doing that in my off hours when I'm sitting on the sofa watching a hockey game. I'll have my laptop and I'll be I'll be writing about writing. And so that's been a lot of fun. Oh, nice. And Katerina? Um, hi, I'm Katerina. I uh, have been doing a read-along with Steve um, of The Prince of Nothing for the past few months. So you might, you might have seen me on the channel here and then. And apart from that, I'm also reading other series. And um, during our read-along, we got into talking about uh, the Malazan Book of Thalen. And so I'm very excited that uh, you decided that I was worth um, being <laughs> invited onto, onto this discussion. Thank you so much for, for having me. Don't forget you're a podcaster now. So don't forget to mention that. Yeah. True. Yeah. <laughs> So with uh, with House of Well, first let me ask you about your, the book that you're doing for writing. What have you remembered during that process that you haven't forgotten, but you hadn't thought about in a while? What what's come out of you that you kind of forgot? It's not. I don't know if it's a question of forgetting. It's um, the book is called The Ritual of Writing, and I think it's about remembering all of those aspects that. Um, have become so much a part of me now that I take, I just, I'm not even conscious uh, of uh, what I'm going through in, in terms of sitting down to write. Um, and so what's made it interesting is I end up having to sort of keep back backtracking in terms of my thinking to sort of lay down the foundations of, of what I'm going to present as, as an argument for not just beginning writers, um, but for uh, published writers uh, who are suffering from writer's block, um, I think there are ways around that kind of stuff. And so I'm going to be addressing some of that as well. I'm excited to, uh, to get into that one. Interesting. I had, um, I had listened to um, Mr. Erickson. I had listened to an interview you did with another podcast where you were discussing the book a bit. And um, I was, um, your writing book. And I, I'm one of those who earned the MFA. <laughs> I even spent a summer in, uh, in Iowa, but then, um, you know, uh, I finished my MFA and the next thing, you know, finished it in August, September, I had my second child. 
So things kind of, you know, deviated. And um, I've mostly written uh, short stories and poetry, published that. Oh, but um, you're so um, your topic of ritual really um, appeals to me because I I get it. You know, I've noticed um, for myself that uh, ritual works for short pieces. You know, mm -hmm. and so I would be curious as to your thoughts about how ritual fits into a lengthy piece um, right or producing a lengthy work how yeah. help extend that and well well two things regarding that um, uh, one is the and I'll get into more detail in, in the book obviously but um, the notion of ritual is actually based on you would think, you know, if people are talking about that kind of stuff, they're talking about sort of the physical preparations and the mental preparations you, you need to go into, um, sit down into your writing room. Um, and I will talk a little bit about that, but that's uh, not the kind of ritual I'm talking about. And so what I'm talking about is actually training yourself to see the world in a particular way hmm. where um, all of the raw stuff, of the fiction you create is all around you and it's there in your history it's there in your background and all the rest mm -hmm. um so it, it is and it's sort of exercising your natural proclivities because i think artists are, are a bit weird that way we're, we're not quite normal um and we tend to establish a kind of uh emotional distance um it's not necessarily a good thing right it's it's, it's just something that happens we we find ourselves in situations where we we do this kind of mental stepping back and we start observing and we start recording uh, what we're seeing around us, um, which is not always a good thing. But recognizing that that is kind of a, a, a tendency or a trait um, mm -hmm. and then putting a focus on it and, and, and putting it to use um, is kind of what I'm talking about in terms of ritual. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, in, writer's block is not quite the same as what Stephen R. Donaldson told me was uh, what he called right, uh, life block. And life block is a very real thing. And that's something that we all have to face. And mm -hmm. basically, it's where everyday domestic um, requirements, responsibilities, and all the rest can simply get in the way of the process of sitting down to write. And that i don't know if there's any solution for that i think it's um it's something where we all have to battle through uh in our own ways so um and certainly uh having a child or or two or three or whatever uh is a huge life block because it's it's an energy draining um experience you know as rewarding as it is it still drains you so and you know yeah it it, it drains it certainly drained me, but nothing compared to how it drained uh, my wife, for example. So, yeah, I really related to uh, Tattersales, hmm. the Tattersales mother's story that um, even as, um, you know, definitely it pays off to put your kids as a priority. So I'm not sorry that happened, but, um, but there's different phases in life and yeah. Absolutely. So I look forward to reading your book. <laughs> good, good.
And um, so with, with House of Chains, it, it was a, a bit of a departure from the, the previous books in that we had a, a singular point of view with Carso, the new character. Uh, was that always planned to have have that one POV to start this book? Was was that was no, that happened? No, it wasn't planned. That was that was a, almost a knee-jerk reaction on my part because uh, a lot of uh, criticisms of the earlier books, um, well, not a lot of them, but some were pointing out that it seems like Erickson can't stick with a single point of view. And of course, always I had good reasons for all these multiple points of view. But that kind of ticked me off because um, I can stick with a single point of view if I choose to. So I sat down and when I started the fourth book, that I thought, okay, I'll, I'll stay with Carsa and let's walk this through for a bit. I thought that worked at this uh, at this particular juncture of the of the series. I haven't read the rest yet, but um, it did give me a chance to focus. I think mm -hmm. on on one and maybe tie some threads together. And Steve and I had great fun talking about um, Carsa and uh, and his companions and the banter and the humor that and that went along with it. And I said sometimes I I think I see humor where it might not have been intended, but I did <laughs> I do did appreciate Carsa being this young man out to see the world. And the boasting, I loved how he, um, you know, he kept making his vows and then his vows would um, fall apart. Like, I vow this dog will sleep on my hearth. And then, you know, um, and then later in uh, House of Chains, um, I thought it was really poignant when he said, uh, okay, I'm not, I, I'm no longer going to make vows or something mm. like that. Yeah. Yeah, learned his lesson, didn't he? He learned his lesson, but it was great. It's a great arc. Cool. I, I also love this part um, in House of Chains. It's, it's one of my favorite couple of chapters in the six books of Malazan that I read so far. And I especially love how um, unrelenting it is, how so much in Carson's perspective that you start with this like extremely narrow view of the world that he knows and the sort of rules, social rules that he thinks are the right rules. And he has very strong ideas on what uh, what he should be doing, what other people should be doing. And then as he starts traveling out and leaves the village and gradually descends into the lowlands, the world starts open, opening up as he's also learning about the world. And gradually that he's realizing that uh, maybe the world isn't the way he thought it was. Um, mm -hmm. maybe it's much more complicated than it seemed originally. Um, and I really love that how we go from this very narrow understanding of the world to this like really, really more complex picture. Yeah, it's, um, there's a lot of that tribal mindset that, that's at play there where, um, basically there are, there have been, and maybe still are, um, tribal groups that define themselves as people and everyone else are not people. Um, there's something else. And so that's a very sort of uh, centric kind of point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think for Carsa, um, it was more uh, a case of as he traveled, reality continually kicked him in the teeth because uh, he was simply not aware of just how complicated and how nuanced um, cultures and civilizations are. 
And I mean, maybe for me, um, probably my first experience of that was as an archaeologist flying to, um, well, landing in Mexico and then taking buses and, and hitchhiking down into Belize to work on a dig. And those are my first real experiences with, um, with a culture that, that is significantly not my own. And that was uh, very eye-opening at the time, for sure. And you start realizing that, you know, things are a lot more complicated. Um, and, uh, you know, as much as I grew up in, in Canada, um, I, I mean, pretty much in a state of, of poverty, but there is a certain level of um, support that exists in, in, in uh, a Western nation and a Western country um, mm -hmm. of, that, of that sort that simply is not there in other places. And there's, you know, a variety of reasons for why that's the case. Um, but it does, it does sort of, it forces perspective upon you. And I think what a lot, a lot of what Carcer is, is experiencing um, in his journey is uh, a widening of that perspective, um, mm -hmm. hitting him again and again and again, which forces him to replace himself uh, where he is in the world. And that seems to be an ongoing thing for Carson. Have you been? Oh, I'm sorry, Layla, go ahead. No, I was going to say that that reminds me. I think um, that's an ongoing thing for um, several of the characters, the characters where their names change. Mm -hmm. um, I see that as, um, you know, it as they as they f either find new skills find new gods, um, something about their identity changes. And so their names change. And I actually made that connection because I was, um, I'm doing an oral history on something else. And, you know, long story short, someone I was interviewing who's, um, <clears throat> you know, about 10, 15 years older than me, I'm 59. She was like, no, identity is fluid. Mm -hmm. And I came into you know, as I started thinking about the characters in this series, I started seeing it the same way, you know, mm -hmm. that as something becomes more important or as something happens to them, something about their identity changes. Um, and they retain some, but they become something new at the same time. And so um, I just really dig that. And I, I, I think it reflects reality is what I'm trying to say. It's fantasy, but it reflects a, a psychological reality. It's probably the impetus for many people sort of moving from their hometown into a city. Mm -hmm. uh, they then have the opportunity to reinvent themselves. And mm -hmm. I, I had no choice in that matter. Um, when I was growing up, um, uh, it was, a, for family reasons, it was very, very uh, dysfunctional and poor. Um, and I ended up in a different school virtually every year. And mm -hmm. um, initially, you know, that I suppose there was, there was trauma involved in that, uh, dislocation, that kind of sense. But it didn't take long, I think, before I realized that each time I come to a new place, um, I can redefine myself because mm -hmm. nobody else knows me. So um, I became a bit of a chameleon in that respect. And I, I just sort of explored different, different approaches to, to the what seemed to be a, a repetition of, of uh, scenarios where I would show up and 
within the first let's face it this is back in the 60s so the first week of first week of school at recess i'd be in a fight and you're the new kid so um the the, the pecking order needs to be established and um and so that was happening you know no matter how i redefine myself that fight was coming um so I, I do recall i think by about the fifth or sixth grade i was learning to fight very dirty <laughs> and winning those fights um and that just sort of you know you realize that even at the time it just it repositioned me uh in the entire um classroom or community or year and um and that was really eye-opening in many respects um so yeah it, it's how it's how characters um engage with the reality that they're in and how that reality changes them i mean it would be difficult to have and it happens in a lot of fantasy fictions where you've got heroic characters who are effectively unchanged by anything that happens around around them and to them and i personally i found that very frustrating that that didn't seem realistic uh, uh, to me that changes were going to occur and some of them are going to be traumatic and and that trauma is actually going to you know have a, a long-lasting effect uh, on, the, on that character so yeah, I'm more. I'm much more interested in how we engage with with the real world, um, and how that that world uh, impacts us. Um, mm -hmm. And we're 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 in constant motion, and uh, our place in it is is constantly changing. And sometimes we can direct that, we can choose that, and other times it's just how events turn out. Yeah. Well, I, I've lived in a uh, couple of different countries and I can definitely attest mm -hmm. to each time being an opportunity to sort of reinvent myself or present a different side of myself to the people I would meet there. Um, but it's also interesting how different people sort of bring out different things of mm -hmm. you and how you kind of become a different person with different people around. And it's also, and then you, it's interesting when you then go back to some of the people you met, you know, five, 10 years ago. And some, and, and sometimes it's, it's like you almost immediately switch to that person that you were with them mm -hmm. when you knew them. Sometimes that doesn't work, but it's a really interesting um, phenomenon. You can be sort of a different person, different times, but also just with different people. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's almost a universal theme of storytelling where, um, you know, the older person comes back uh, into their family. They've been estranged from the family and they come back into the family and, and the expectations all around them um, want to slot them back into the old grooves that, that existed in the relationship of siblings and parents and all the rest. And But you've changed by that point, right? So you don't fit anymore uh, where, where they expect you to fit. And so, you know, plenty of films and stories uh, are all about that kind of conflict. Um, and there's the expectation of sort of being where you always were relationship wise with, with, you know, your siblings or your parents and that no longer being the case. Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it's interesting stuff. I think I most strongly felt that in this book with Absalar, um, mm -hmm. when she makes this journey to, um, I mean, it starts it starts in Deadhouse case, but she makes this journey to go back to it, Kokan, to the village where she she was born, where she grew up, and then she sort of realizes that she's not the fisher girl that she was when she, when she left, and there's not really a place for her. 
Um, yeah. she, has to, she has to go out and do something else with her life because she can't stay there anymore. She can't stay there as the uh, assassin ascendant that, that she no. is now. No. And I think themes of dislocation are, are certainly, you know, prevalent throughout the series. Um, many characters have to deal with that. Um, Fiddler's heading for it um, as, you, as you read further in strings. Mm -hmm. uh, a couple of comments. Uh, our friend Johanna's here. Uh, excited to watch this. Oh, hi, Johanna. The second book in the Witness uh, trilogy. And uh, Mr. Erickson's familiar green room. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I inherited it. We just haven't gotten around to painting it. So, okay. and our friend Daniel's here. Cool. Uh, Matt uh, Carso feels to me like the character who develops the most throughout the series. Well, given where he starts and the fact that that there, as a reader you come into him very early on in his in his uh, creation. But that I, I would agree that that's a pretty huge uh, arc on his part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, he became fun to write with because I could throw everything at him and just see what would happen, right? <laughs> and so he goes through he goes through a lot. Hey, right. you, you threw a couple of sharks at him. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> I love I love Carson. I want to talk more about him uh, here in a second. But uh, DK Moon mentioned the longer single POV adds to my reading enjoyment. That's Is good. That, I mean, it, it's intended to be uh, as immersive as possible. So, um, and I held to, you know, I, even if I look back on that section, I held to the tightest point of view um, I possibly could. So, you know, his misunderstandings of, you know, his companions um, is something I really wanted to hold on to so that, you know, if, if, um, Banisk or was it Banisk? Who are the two guys with him? Cameron, um, Bayroth and Delam. Bayroth and, and Delam Thord. Um, you know, if they have a conversation that that Karth is listening in on. Um, he may not. He may. He may either misunderstand it or not understand it at all. But the reader does. So there's that kind of extra engagement for for the readership, I think. And our friend Matt had a question. Uh, a lot of characters die in the books, but a lot of these don't stay dead. Uh, what are your thoughts on death in your books? Um, well, it, it's the world building, the, the basically the, the the structural premises that are underlying uh, the Malazan world um, is very much inspired um, by a lot of um, ancient belief systems, including, uh, for example, the Greeks, where um, they had plenty of myths about traveling um, into the realm of death and, and returning or, or not returning. Uh, and then the Egyptian, of course, the Greeks got a lot of it, their inspiration from Egypt. And, and so there, there's that kind of crossover. Um, and it, it just struck us when we were, even when we were gaming, that it, it gave us greater flexibility um, to actually, you know, it's one thing to explore the theme of death only from the side of the living. Um, I mean, that's only half of the equation. And so you run up against that wall immediately um, of the end of mortality. And, uh, you know, if our, if our modern world and the West sort of views that as, as the end, then there really is nothing to discuss, right? But... I, I, I'm not, I'm not one who um, naturally ascribes to that anyway. So, 
the idea of exploring death from both sides um, just seemed to be an obvious opportunity uh, within a fantasy setting. And of course, we've got a god of death. Well, you know, what's the god up to? You know, is he just simply harvesting souls or is he, you know, what's his state of mind after all this, you know, all this time? Um, and of course, the deaths where characters return, they're not the same person. They have, they have undergone, uh, you know, a major transformation uh, of their psyche. And, um, and there's trauma involved and there's sort of an opening of the eyes. I, mean, I, I don't know, go on to YouTube and, and start listening to people discussing near-death experience. And, and you'll see the extent to which even, you know, being dead for 30 seconds or six minutes has fundamentally changed every single one of them. Um, and you can you can rationalize it as this was just the flare out of, of uh, oxygen starved brain or whatever whatever belief system you want to sort of put into place there. None of that matters to the person. The person is changed. It's as simple as that. And so in the Malaysian stuff, I, I definitely get interested and get more interested in the character when I'm pushing them back out of their state of death and back into the world of the living because then they really start getting fascinating for me. I, I found that theme um, fascinating on another level <clears throat> in regard to, excuse me, history, <clears throat> where, you know, there, there are voices that we heard, we've heard 2000 years ago, for example, mm -hmm. that are still uh, present and still um, impacting our world today. And so I, you know, that fits, I guess, I guess thematically that fits mm -hmm. with kind of a perception I have anyway that, you know, um, uh, nothing ever really goes away. Mm -hmm. Things rise up again, you know, but new texts, new old texts are discovered and the voice is back in, you know, into the world. And uh, so I kind of had a sense that's the sense i'm going with as i'm as i'm reading so it kind of helps to hear your perspective on that too well i mean you consider one of the earliest stories <clears throat> ever that we know of anyways gilgamesh mm -hmm. it's all about that right mm -hmm. it's all about that journey um right so if we think of those early stories gilgamesh um a lot of the greek myths uh, egyptian myths um if you look at it from sort of a modern perspective, you, you might call them all epic fantasy. But they are, you know, the, the origins of literature is found in epic fantasy. So it's, um, it's certainly themes that, that have been explored and will be constantly explored um, throughout our existence. And so for me, um, how could you avoid it? Why would you avoid it? Um, you know, it, it's, it's a central, central question of, of what it is to be human is think about you know what happens afterwards where does our consciousness go um how how does the experience of dying um potentially either change us transform us or end us you know whichever view you want to take on these things um but they're questions worth asking even though if we we don't have answers but they're certainly worth asking well I can only speak for myself, but um, I was already very emotional at the end of the Chain of Dogs. Mm -hmm. But 
reading about Duiker coming back to life was probably even more saddening knowing you know reading the end of of uh, of dead house gates and sort of despite all the horror like at least having this comfort that finally he is getting his peace and then watching him come back into all this horror of the world um that really impacted me um, well he, he comes and, back a broken man doesn't he mm -hmm. um and okay I, I can tell you that um his story is is to some extent picked up again at least briefly in toll the hounds so he i haven't put him away completely by this point so I'm not there yet but yeah yeah <laughs> hopefully next year yeah. with uh with carsa um uh, well with that storyline especially in the first book of the first book in this in this book in house of chains i'm not sure if i just didn't get the humor before because when we would discuss the books like the first couple of books everyone else is laughing about certain parts of it. I just, like, I didn't, I didn't catch the humor, but in, in the, I don't know if it was me or if it was something that you ramped up the humor a little bit, but a lot of the dialogue and the back and forth, there was some great humorous portions in that, in that first part. Do you mean with respect to the army and the military? Uh, just no, but just about with Carsa and oh. the, the dialogue in the, in the beginning and the first book, like I felt like I cut onto it. Like when well, Carsa, oh, I'm sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. No, just like when Carsa was telling Torvald Nam, uh, you talk too much or you use too many words. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, some of the time, I, I'm hoping it's clear that a lot of the humor is flying over Carsa's head. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it, 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 there's more opportunity in that respect. Um, right. He's an in, in, unintentionally funny, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I found humor, too, as I said before, um, with Onrak and Troll Singer, I, when they, when they first met, I kind of saw them as like, now they're on this road trip, you know, mm -hmm. like Martin and Lewis on their road trip, you know, because when they get to the hounds, the dogs, and, um, you know, Troll Singer basically dares Onrak to let them go, and, um, <laughs> So, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening there. It's not, it's not all serious. It's, um, uh, it's humor, but it also humanizes them. Even, even though Onrak is, you know, I guess neither are human, right? Mm. <laughs> but um, it uh, makes them more appealing as characters, I think, to see that side of them. Yeah, um, and certainly that's that's one aspect of using uh, character-based humor um, in a narrative is is yeah to draw that sort of um, humanizing element uh, a bit more to the, the fore, so that people can't be serious all the time. Um, it, it actually gets kind of boring if a character is you know, perpetually serious, um, yeah. and if you end up with a character writing a character like that then you can have just absolute hilarity going on around them and they're just you know unfazed by it uh or unaffected by it i think in house of chains there's certainly um faradan sort for example um mm -hmm. i think i think with the scorpions is that in this book oh yeah mm -hmm. yes. yeah right yeah, yeah. There, there's a completely humorless character right and so yeah. she has an impact in her own fashion yeah 
I yeah, think that... the oh sorry go ahead no go ahead um uh, I was just going to say uh, that uh, the Thai Liu San are also another wonderful mm. example of that I don't hear people talk about them much but I found them absolutely hilarious um from the first moment they meet troll and they're like oh would you like to be our slave <laughs> uh, to the point where I think their ho horses get blown up at the at the end by the Morath munition. They're like, well, yeah, maybe we'll just abandon this adventure because it's not worth our, yeah. uh, that's not worth our time. Let's let's focus on other things. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were hilarious. I, I had real fun with them. Cool, cool. Yeah, and you know, there's drier humor. Even Tavari. I'm not sure if at the end where. Um, uh, Karsa says, you're not my enemy anymore. And she kind of dryly says, oh, that's that's good to know, you know. <laughs> well, but the reader knows that it, it really is good to know, right? Right. Laura <laughs> is not aware of that. Um, right. So, yeah, her comment is, is certainly uh, intended ironically, but um, the reader yeah. should know better, right? So. Right, 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 right. The reader knows. Yeah. So... Um, but that, you know, that reminds me of something that um, Steve and I talked about uh, last time, too, which is um, the the military itself. I guess, I guess what led you to, to um, set your theories within, uh, you know, within military, within the military and the, the soldiers on the ground versus the, you know, the leaders and the the plotters, um, which of course are in there too, but. Yeah, well, to a lesser extent. Um, I think both uh, Esselmont, Cam and I were uh, react, even in our gaming book that preceded um, all of this, we were all about sort of um, unplugging the, the, uh, the more cliched elements of epic fantasy. So you know, in creating the Malazan world, we, we pushed it back to sort of late Roman Empire as opposed to medieval Europe. Um, and we were much more interested, uh, as you say, on, on the boots on the ground. Um, Gardens of the Moon certainly uh, pushed that quite a bit with Crocus um, and his impact uh, on the story. Um, so that was, that, was, that was a trope we always wanted to kick at. Um, and that, that idea of entire novels all about the aristocracy uh, or the nobility. Um, we were kind of, by that point, got fairly tired of that stuff. Um, and that combined with uh, two things. One, um, reading a lot of uh, Vietnam War literature uh, and military stuff. Um, and then seeing what Glenn Cook was doing with that, uh, with his Black Company series, mm -hmm. was, uh, you know, I mean, he's the one who sort of laid the groundwork uh, and, and sort of broke the mold of fantasy um, by by basically infusing a fantasy setting with uh, a Vietnam War veteran mentality. Uh, I mean, it was fantastic, uh, absolutely amazing. And then both Cam and I have worked on digs and, you know, uh, in archaeology and quite often very remote locations. And um, usually a small crew, you know, seven, eight people. And one of the things you discover fairly quickly when you're out uh, in the bush on a dig is 
sort of the civilized trappings kind of slip away from everybody. And uh, you get to know people in, in a way that you would never be able to get to know them if uh, you'd met them in, in a city or, or in a classroom or anything like that. It's a whole different beast out there. Um, and at times, you know, environmental conditions or um, badly run projects, um, there's a level of, of, of absurdity that slips in. Um, and either you laugh or you go crazy. And so both Cam and I, we tended to head towards going for laughs. Um, you know, no matter how miserable things were, we, we could always find something to laugh about. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of attitude, I guess, um, we wanted to make sure was reflected in these soldiers who are, you know, putting, are being put through all of these uh, experiences, um, good and bad, boring and uh, terrifying and all of these things at once. Um, and humor and um, understatement being the means by which they defend their own humanity, if that makes sense. It does. And that, you know, we had even mentioned Vietnam uh, last time. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, uh, I remember myself um, just uh, being from Texas, you know, friends and, and, uh, you know, their, their relatives who had come back from Vietnam, and then the literature, as you said, too. And then now we've gone into 1991 and the first Gulf War and all of that. So I guess my point is, um, my point really is about fantasy, contemporary fantasy and how it relates to those um, life experiences, especially of um, writers, you know, for example, Wheel of Time, the um, author was a Vietnam veteran, Robert Jordan and um, PTSD was a focus, you know. And so as I'm reading this, I am, as I'm reading your series, that kept coming back to me, what was that um, Vietnam experience and then, and then the experiences uh, forward. So um, it seems like it's fantasy, but there's a, a lot of reality to consider, I guess. I hope so. I hope so. Um, curiously, that ties into what we talked about earlier with the notion of returning. Um, so I, I brought the idea of, of you being away from, you know, estranged from your family for 20 years and going back to the hometown, the small town and uh, the expectations that are laid upon you and, and this almost pressure to fall back into uh, the familiar patterns that were there when you were much younger. Well, you know, times that by a thousand for a returning uh, veteran, mm -hmm. right? The world they've, they just left is so fundamentally different from, from what they left behind. And then when they're expected to return and just seamlessly slip back into the, you know, that mindset and that way of living uh, and to fit um, with a, well, more or less functioning society when they've been, you know, spending the last three years or two years in, in uh, a broken, non-functional, dysfunctional society um, where conflicts everywhere around you. That, um, that's the sort of, 
I think the thing that that is the most tragic to all of this. And um, I certainly never wanted to um, gloss over it or um, be dismissive of it. So, yeah, it plays a role. It plays a role. And, and also the notion that when you're in the military, um, you build your families um, around you. And again, it's not a question of um, going to a university and meeting up with like-minded people and suddenly, yeah, you guys are all sort of hanging out together and, and, and you know, you've got, you've built a family. It's an artificial family, but you've built it, right? Of friends. Um, that's not how squads are put together, right? <laughs> you know, it can be anybody and everybody. Um, so again, it, it's a, it's an unnatural grouping. And then it becomes a challenge to every person in that group. Uh, you know, how do you live together? Um, and, um, how do you manage those, those very, very, uh, disparate experiences, life experiences that, that each person is bringing to that, to that scenario. Um, and this is what a lot of the, the writers of military fiction who have been veterans um, are focusing on, and it's what they're exploring. Um, one of the best writers for that is Gustav Hassford uh, with his book, The Short Timers, um, which became a Full Metal Jacket, uh, Kubrick's adaptation of the book. It's it as far as I know, it is okay. Um, going after Cacciato um, is a Mobius strip story, so there's there's magic realism involved. But I think the short timer is is maybe the only absolutely pure raw uh, Vietnam War novel that has fantasy in it. Hmm. Um, it has one of the most extraordinary scenes that, for some reason, Kubrick never included in the film. But it's it's a fantastic scene and it's surreal and it's just wonderful. So, so all of that stuff sort of I guess feeds into um, the way that, especially since Cam and I were on digs and on digs together and different digs. Um, so when we were gaming, we'd fall back into that that sheer level of I guess absurdity uh, in terms of role playing the characters. So um, that humor always comes through. I think, at least for us, it did. Well, as, as you said, uh, the Melazin books certainly do um, focus a lot on the, on the sort of the, com the this common soldier, the, the, the foot on the ground. Um, but I also find in this book in particular, there is a lot of um, focus on leadership or mm -hmm. and people coming into uh, positions um, where they have to be leaders. Um, thinking of Tavor, um, Temel, who are sort of stepping in to replace Coltane, who is this yeah. like symbol of a perfect all-knowing leader. Um, so I was wondering if that was something that um, you know we were exploring here. Yeah, um, absolutely, and. It's interesting that it still ties into that that notion of positioning within a family, right? I mean, Memories mm -hmm. of Ice is, is in one respect, if I really simplify it, it's also about, it's primarily about motherhood. And so you have sort of mother roles are being played out throughout the entire book, starting in the, in the prologue. Um, this one's about siblings. And so 
um, you know, your two primary uh, movers and shakers for the story are sisters. And, um, and yet they are estranged from one another. And uh, for, at least for one of them is a complete stranger to the other. And so it's kind of uh, recognizing that, that that family dynamic is the dynamic of human human interaction. It doesn't matter whether it's in the military or anywhere else. And so leaders acquire a kind of a parental uh, role, mm-hmm. whether they, they accept it or not. Um, and Strings, of course, Fiddler is finding himself being pushed into that role, one that he certainly didn't have uh, with the bridge burners. So you're, you're going to be able to see his development of, of becoming um, a leader, even though he, he never moves up in rank, but he, he's still where all eyes turn to um, at times of need. So mm-hmm. yeah, that kind of relationship is, is and it's going to be played out over and over again amongst all kinds of characters that um, there is a familial aspect to, to all of this. Um, that hopefully is recognizable, at least instinctively, uh, to the reader. Yeah, and I, I also appreciate that um, not everyone is necessarily um, able to cope with that new role that they are given. Um, you have Tabor, who is seemingly becoming this this, this good leader. Um, Felicin, probably not so much, um, but there's also um, Gamet the Fist, who, who is put who is sort of forced into this position by by Tavor and um at the end just can really live live up to those um to what's required of him like he's not able to make that transition from being a mm-hmm. just a soldier to being a, a a leader yeah yeah you know i got a um uh another thought uh as i was reading about Tavor and um Felicin at the, you know, at the end, um, you know, divorce, um, she controls her emotions and Felicin was all emotion. Yeah. And, um, by, you know, by killing Felicin unknowingly, um, that, that sort of communicated that sense of, you know, shutting down emotion once again. And um, I thought that was interesting that now we have Felicin Younger, who um, may be inheriting something of Felicin, her mother, in terms of, you know, she's been also uh, harmed, brutally harmed. And so uh, will she seek vengeance or how will she... um, you know, direct her emotions in the future. And it seems for, you know, I'm still trying to figure out Crocus or Cutter's role in what, you know, working with Phyllis and Younger. Um, but um, I, I sense something about that. It, we're heading towards something to do with um, how emotion plays a role in our lives and how um it's helpful and harmful at the same time yeah i would to some extent but um i would only advise you not to be deceived by the surface uh, appearance mm-hmm. um so one able to constrain any outward display of emotion uh, is not 
necessarily an emotionless person. Right. right. So everything's down to perception in this card, in this case. And Tavor, as a leader, um, at least her her, her self-definition of what it is to be a leader is to not show um, emotion. So that's why there's this talk about cold iron versus hot iron and that kind of thing. Um, so that that is the task that she has assumed and whether or not she can uh, hold on to it for as long as necessary is is one of her her main challenges uh, in the series. And we know that she loved Felicity because she did send um, uh, Pearl and Lostera out too, to find them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Can I just say um, the <laughs> chemistry between Pearl and Lostara is perfect. <laughs> right. I, I think sometimes the romance in these books get a bit of a bad reputation, but I think this one is done so well and I had so much fun with it too. And I always, I always looked forward to seeing them again. Well, um, and I've said this before, but a lot of the banter is actually, uh, almost copied verbatim from conversations my wife and I we have so you know mm. it fit it fit well enough I mean neither neither of us are assassins but apart from that um, <laughs> a lot of those lines that were dropped there yeah I just sort of plucked from memory yeah they feel very they feel very uplift they feel very real good good here we did have a comment from uh, from Vignesh uh, Coltane is the most impactful character for me in the series as of now but so see the characters trace back to his travel in this book was a wonderful look back on trauma and war. Yeah, I, I definitely wanted to to physically move those characters. Um, and I don't think this is a big spoiler, but Tabor's army becomes the Bone Hunters. That's what that's the name yeah. they acquire. Um, and so, I, you know, if you look at the rest of the series, you can see that there's a whole book called the Bone Hunters. So, I stay with them, but returning that on that route um allowed me to to actually kind of re-explore the legacy uh, of the journey um but also uh it's part of the um the birth of the bone hunters and 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 they're basically uh on their way physically um to a place that is kind of uh, thematically a match to the bridge burners. So if you think of the bridge burners from Gardens of the Moon and, and uh, Memories of Ice, they're in their last last sort of days of existence as, as uh, a military force, mm -hmm. um, which is kind of strange to start a series that way with um, you know the last days of, of sort of your main military um, focus for the Malaysian Empire. But I knew that um, if I started with the end of the bridge burners, then I could start with the beginning of the bone hunters. And so these, you'd get the full package. Um, so um, so that this, this is their, their journey. And of course, they're journeying through recent past and recent events uh, and seeing just the rubbish left behind, um, the wreckage left behind by that. And that, that's kind of their, I mean, it, it, it's a physical metaphor for their answering the rebellion itself. And that's why they're there. So uh, retracing the steps made sense. Go ahead, Lou. 
Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, I was going to mention that. Eric had a comment. Near-death experiences may be tied to prophetic visions. They may well be. Hard to know. And Matt, <laughs> Matt uh, speaking of being emotional after Deadhouse Gates, why you, why are you so mean to us, Mr. Erickson? I think you it was in, a lot? <laughs> in the writing of Deadhouse Gates, I realized that I was less putting uh, fantasy elements into, I mean, tragic elements into fantasy than fantasy elements into tragedy. Because it, it suddenly struck me that actually I want to write tragedies. Um, so because I was interested in the notion of catharsis and um, that pushed me in that direction. But um, I, I knew what I knew what sort of Coltane's fate was going to be. And it was just a question of keeping the reins, you know, tight, but not not letting the horse take off on us because. And, you know, a lot of uh, people complain about the chain of dogs being the slog. Well, it's intended to be a slog. That's the whole point. Um, and without it, you don't get the emotional payoff, at least in my mind. Um, you have to actually go go with them almost every step of the way to really have the response that I, I'm hoping the reader has when they get to the fall at the end of Dead House Gates. You know, well, I, I certainly did. Good. <laughs> I, I truly did not see it as a slog. I, I enjoyed those parts. I felt very comfortable in them. I felt like I was getting more information about the characters and the nuances between each one. And that's what made it such a, um, a beautiful, tragic ending is because mm -hmm. realizing all that that had built up and, you know, how it came to an end. Um, Something a question I do have I haven't quite figured out is I forget the name of the person who ultimately shot Coltane. It starts Squint. with an S. Squint. Oh, Squint. He seems to have been accepted back into the fold, if I understand correctly. He's not ostracized by uh um. Is there a point of view from Squint in House of Chains? I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, wait for it. Because, oh. um, yeah, there may be a sense that he's accepted, but he doesn't see it that way. Okay. No, absolutely okay. not. There's a conversation coming. Don't worry. Okay. All right, good. Because I've been worried about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Eric had a comment. Loved your intro to the Black Company. Uh is that a, a written one? Uh, was that for the, uh, if you can ask me, Eric, um, I wrote a, uh, an intro for, yeah, for the black company for a kind of, um, masterworks kind of series. And if that's what you're referring to, can you let me know, Eric? Um, cause I would appreciate that. Cause I've just been asked for by another publishing house to write a forward to the black company. And, um, I wasn't aware, whether the one I've already written has been published or not. Ah, recent edition is on the store. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. That means I have to write another <laughs> to the black company for a different publisher. Okay. And I also had a question. Was the Malazan empire being more of a meritocracy regardless of where they're uh, from in the empire in comparison to Lathar and exploration or more an ideal society? Um, to some extent, yeah, uh, we, we certainly wanted um, 
Okay, there, there was a period in Byzantine history um, when Constantinople was probably the most um, tolerant and diverse, diverse civilization anywhere, uh, certainly as a city. Um, and nobody really cared what, what, you know, what people's skin color was. Nobody cared about um, what nation you came from, what language you spoke even. Um, and it was just, it was a brief, brief period um, before sort of, I guess, uh, religion sort of reared its head uh, in terms of uh, Islam. And, and I, I don't want to get into all that because that's actually about the Crusades more than it is about Byzantium. Um, but there was a period there. And I remember when I was studying that stuff, being really taken by that. Um, and then for the, the world building, yeah, we very much wanted um, we wanted a world that really did not have um, that kind of racism in place and did not have patriarchy either. So um, by stripping those two things away, um, that helped us build uh, the cultures and the civilizations of, of the Malazan world. Now, when I got to Lether, Lether is very much about, in terms of inspiration, the British Empire. And uh, that's what I built it on. Um, and so I, I, it was built as a counterpoint, certainly to the Malazans. Yeah. Well, speaking of empires, I, I had a question about um, the the rebellion. So when I read Dead House Gates, and most of it is told from the point of view of the chain of dogs or of the Malazans, mm -hmm. Um, and you sort of get the idea that um, the um, the armies of the apocalypse, like they are doing, like they're committing a lot of very violent acts and just not treating even their own people nicely. Um, but there is still this sense that um, you know these are these are people rebelling against a uh, colonizing power, absolutely uh, power that conquered that uh, mil that basically is is engaged in a military conquest of, of their of um, the place where they live um so it's very interesting to me then go to house of chains and and, and learn more about the uh, the camp of the apocalypse mm -hmm. and uh, see how basically all of the leadership is completely corrupted um does not care does not seem to care about the cause at all and only 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 seems to pursue their own interests um, so I was, I was wondering if like, this was your, um, this, this, this is how you view rebellions in general. Um, no, not particularly, um, for the case of the, uh, uh, the whirlwind, um, the influence of the, I guess the, the, the godlike powers, uh, like Shaikh, um, and I think you find out in this one where Shaikh came from. I'm not sure if you do, but I think you do. Yeah. Um, have a, uh, a profound sort of knock-on effect onto how the, the, the core leaders of that rebellion um, end up basically devouring themselves. Um, so that, that kind of was a, a, an overriding in, uh, influencer um, in terms of how I wrote out the, the camp uh, in Reraku. Um, but in, in a more general sense, um, the emergence of violence on that level, on that scale is kind of, um, 
it doesn't have it doesn't have focus so it it, it tends to be destructive of even things that um needn't have been destroyed if you know what i mean and so social structure breaks down very quickly and um the equivalent of the people with the with the most guns um tend to step into the vacuum of of, of power um and bad things can happen at that point um which is not to say that uh, rebelling against a, a colonial power is um in any way uh something i want to be commenting on i mean it's, it's part of history and we've seen it played out many times and um liberation takes many forms um and quite often it's, it's not an easy transition either so it's very much sort of recognizing that it, it's this isn't a black and white argument you know colonialism um and imperialism and it, it's complicated and so I want to stay within that complications, right? I, I'm not sort of presenting any particular thesis on this kind of stuff. I'm simply trying to explore how people are living within that. And so there will be examples on all sides. Um, at least I hope so. Anyways, I don't know if that was an answer or not, but something I think when I think of the world, when, uh, in general is it's, um, you know, it, it's grown out of a, a need for, um, it's grown out of pain. It's grown out of a need for vengeance. I'm not sure, but it's definitely mm -hmm. something that's grown out of pain from, uh, you know, um, Anurak and his wife. Um, and um, so, uh, I saw it more as drawing in all of these <clears throat> wounded people as well, you yeah. know, and, and maybe that's where I've got a little bit of confusion because the house of chains also seems to draw in people who have, you know, issues <laughs> like Carsa um, and uh, Hiboric, I believe. Um, so I guess, um, does a whirlwind and the House of Chains have a connection? I guess that's the question I'm getting at. You mean the specific House of Chains? The, yes. Uh, no, probably only okay. geographically, I think. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't think in, in other respects. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to sort of explore the idea that um, the land itself um, is a major player in all of this. And um, those forces, um, when, they're, when they're triggered, um, they're kind of, um, they don't discriminate in terms of their victims. And so that aspect of, of uh, I'm trying to think, is the House of Chains involving the rebirth of Reriku? Or is that Bone Hunters? I think uh, is a rebirth when the water comes yeah. in. Yeah, yeah, that's House of Chains. Yeah. Okay, that's good. House of Chains. Yeah. Yeah. So I was dancing around that, trying to remember whether <laughs> it showed up. <laughs> uh, so yes, so the land responds. Mm -hmm. um, and if one takes a you know a huge step back, you can see there's a healing consequence to that. Mm -hmm. uh, 
which is, I guess, also a cultural healing as well. Mm-hmm. So there's all, all those things are sort of in play. Um, but, you know, one of the things that happens uh, in these circumstances is because uh, colonialism and conquest, imperial conquest, replaces the power structure and the power dynamics uh, of the conquered society. And um, so there will be elements within that society that will resist that for obvious reasons, because they've lost their power. And so if those elements can then um, incite the general populace uh, into rebellion, then they've they've got a proper rebellion on their hands and they might well oust the the occupiers. But of course, historically, we know that even when that's done, you still can't go back to how it used to be, right? Things have changed. Everything changes. Uh, and, and so that that sense of, of that constant evolution of, of society and culture um, is always going to be part of these, these stories uh, and part of the themes I'm approaching because mm-hmm. cultures in conflict um, are, at least for me, uh, historically interesting and uh, emotionally interesting as well. Brian had a question. Was there a particular inspiration for the image of a cruciform dragon? It's been years, but that passage has remained with me. I suppose it's a bit of a uh, Caritas-like, but I am a humanities dullard. Um, Caritas, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I write visually, so I I just sort of built the scene. Um, And of course, you know, having read if you've read Dead House Gates, you know that there is, um, I, I am uh, exploring some Judeo-Christian imagery as well, already in place. And so if on occasion I sort of ring that bell again, then, you know, that's why I'm doing that. Um, but I can't remember how I described it, but yeah, it was probably pretty detailed anyways. Yeah, Matt commented. Reading the chain of chain chain of dogs wasn't a slog; it was a witness, and it was witnessing a heartbreaking slog. And and the thing is, I, I was, I mean, there's there's a there's a running joke running all the way through it, um, with respect to Mincer, um, the uh, the leader of the the sappers, and of course, holding off on that as long as I possibly could was, at least for me, a lot of the fun of the writing of it. Um, that you couldn't find him. He never showed up in the officers' um, <laughs> meetings and all the rest. And initially, that was accidental. I just accidentally dropped. I forgot about him and, and dropped him out of there. And then I realized that no, I, I can I can work that and turn it into uh, one particular scene where where you know where everything gets reversed and it allows that moment of humanity to show um, in Coltane. Um, so you, know, you were talking earlier about Tavor's uh, basically raising that wall around herself um, in terms of emotional. Well, we saw we already saw it in Coltane, didn't we? Um, and so if she's if she's looking for an inspiration, maybe she's drawing on that sense of Coltane um, as a leader. But of course, that that's the moment of humanizing uh, moment for him. Uh, is the whole scene with uh, the demotion of a rank. 
And uh, I also had a question. Is it true that the chains of dogs is in part based yes. on the flight of the nest peers? Yeah. 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 But also the uh, retreat through Afghanistan uh, to the Kabul Pass by the British uh, when they were kicked out the first time. One, uh, one scene for me that stood out that was a, it was, a, I started to wonder if it was something wrong with me, but uh, the, the way Karsa dispatches Bidenthal mm -hmm. was especially satisfying. I thought it was great, but in hearing other, other perspectives on it, there was, I've, I'd heard and, and read some other perspectives that it was a little bit, um, we shouldn't just kill a character like Bidenthal. He should be punished in other ways. What are your thoughts on that, on, on scenes like that, on, uh, you know, death versus other types of punishment for characters? Um, I didn't have to worry about it too much because I knew it was going to be Carsa. It couldn't be, it couldn't be the Malaisans um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, it, it was not their punishment to meet. Um, but Carsa as, as an outside agency that um, represents a fairly... Um, almost simplified sense of justice, uh, mm -hmm. almost eye for eye kind of thing. And so, you know, symbolically, the gesture he makes in killing Bidithal is in perfect keeping with the crimes that Bidithal committed. And as far as Carson was concerned, that was good enough. And I was happy to leave it with that. And um, rather than explore sort of other aspects of, of what constitutes punishment. Um, I allowed Carso to be fairly direct and um, <laughs> and it, it's fitting. It, it fits his character and it suits his character um, and it seemed appropriate. And, you know, there's something about that whole setting. I really enjoy, you know, in the midst of everyone else's um, aspirations, you know, for power or, you know, everything that's going on here comes Carso in the middle of it you know, to take care of his business. Mm -hmm. And um, I just love stuff like that where, you know, um, it's not just about the two big, you know, armies clashing. There are all these other motives mm -hmm. and individuals with their own motives, you know, um, acting. And so I, I really, I, I thought that was, um, that whole thing was good. You know, for me, he was, he was going to, I was setting all this stuff up in the camp but I knew that Carson was going to be the bull in the China shop. It wasn't yeah. like that. So that was, yeah, that was exactly. yeah. I, I felt maybe a little bit differently about uh, Bidithal's debt. I know people get very excited about it, uh, but I, I, I guess I'm not a big fan of retributive justice. Mm -hmm. um, not, not, I mean, obviously not that I, you know, approve, approve or agree with, with the things he does, but I think more than anything, his death just made me really sad because I felt like, okay, he's dead, but it doesn't erase anything that doesn't erase a thing. You've done. It's not going to fix Felicin. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't, I didn't really see the point of taking pleasure in him dying. Um, yeah. And I certainly didn't, I didn't write it for purposes of, of taking pleasure in his dying. This was consistent to what, what, how Carson would respond to this situation. Um, so that, that's, you know, that's basically his tribal law being enacted there. Um, and so it's just, it's done, right? It's like, you know, um, 
the legacy and, and, and the damage that, that Bidithal caused is not something I'm going to leave alone. Um, I'm, I'm staying with it. Um, and we're going to see, we're going to see uh, the victims um, have to deal with, you know, their, their, the, the damage that they've received. And um, it's like anything else. If you're going to create something like that in fiction, um, it's not the event and it's not even the, the acts or the crimes that are something you should be um, indulging in. You just lay that stuff out uh, in as simple a language as possible, as in a repertorial style. So no emotion attached. Um, but it's the consequences that that's where you have to sort of um, allow, you know, as the writer, you allow your own emotions to actually, um, or rather to allow what that character might be experiencing uh, and through your imagination, this is the only way we can do this, um, to seep into uh, your mindset. And, and at that point, then, yeah, you are in that character's skin. And um, you have to be honest when you're there. Uh, and you have to be compassionate. Um, and that's the stuff that, that I want to write towards. It, it's not, the action scenes are they all have a particular plot function and all the rest. Um, but it's the characters that, that um, are my primary interest. I kind of like the rand randomness of it in, in terms that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people out there that have done bad. They don't always, you know, get the punishment that, that should happen. But yet, you know, um, sometimes people end up in uh sometimes people end up getting punished and it's not even for what they really should be punished for if that makes sense you mm -hmm. know and so i kind of got that random sense of you know carsa had his own reasons for what he was doing and it just happened to mesh with you know being with this guy that's just like a really horrible person you know? yeah yeah and of course it's not an easy fit is it because his timing sucked uh he was too late in many respects Right, the damage was already done, so um, yeah, it's not an easy fit at all, and that that, that felt more realistic in a sense, um, rather than you know showing up in the nick of time kind of thing. And then even as we're talking about that, you know, that particular um, circumcision is actually a, a cultural yep. attribute of some cultures. So, you know, while we're while we're seeing it as a moral issue, um, you know other cultures and other times and even now might not see it the same way like why was Bizethal killed because hey you know yeah. um, this is a cultural practice you know so yeah and, and it's it's i mean you know i i studied anthropology and so at the time at least and maybe to the to this day there's always this issue of uh cultural relativism and moral relativism. Um, you know, where do you draw the line? Where, uh, what traditional practices are actually pushing beyond um, uh, what is morally acceptable uh, mm -hmm. in a more general sense? And of course, you know, we've got uh, a human rights commission. We've got, you know, a declar universal declaration of human rights and all the rest. And 
Um, and if that runs up against something like female circumcision, then you'll see arguments on both sides, you know, um, that this is, this is what's a cultural practice, um, traditional practice or whatever. But at least for me, at some point, um, a moral line is crossed. And that's just, that was sort of my take on it, that mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm not one who, who would, you know, automatically default to uh, revering or respecting tradition. Um, a lot of traditions were really, they really sucked. They were bad. You know? mm -hmm. It's as simple as that. Um, and so that, that notion of cultural purity, which is the, the counterpoint of the whole thing, right? Because if you're talking about cultural relativism, relativism in terms of uh, what most people would consider inhuman practices, then um, the other side is, what are you defending? You're defending a kind of cultural purity. Um, but cultures are not, they're not solid things. They're constantly changing and, and they are evolving and they are, they are appropriating from other cultures on a regular basis. Um, they are on occasion expropriating from other cultures. Uh, so they're, they're in a constant state of flux and evolution. And quite often the appeal to um, cultural purity is actually an appeal to nostalgia. It's how a person remembers themselves growing up within that culture. And of course, it's not the same culture anymore, right? It, it, it changes, it morphs, it changes all the time. Um, so then, you, then you're looking at issues of cultural identity and that's a whole different area, but um, it's complicated. It is very complicated stuff. Yeah, that's why that scene, yeah. you know, that scene invites deep thoughts. <laughs> well, and, yeah. and that's probably why I chose Carsa because yeah, you, you know, you can end up going down sort of a rabbit hole in terms of uh, ethics and, and uh, cultural uh, respect of other other cultures and all the rest. Uh, and I just did not want to go there, so uh, I sent Carsa <clears throat> a hammer, and he just smashed it all up. <laughs> It's useful that way. <laughs> uh, I think I can definitely see you taking a stance there because um, my experience in most of the characters in Alasin, um, especially the, the the characters that would be considered the the bad guys, is, is has been that um, you know even people who seem evil or have <clears throat> bad intentions um, at first sight. I'm thinking maybe someone like Lacine or Tatrin. Like over time, as you get to know them, you realize there may there may be a, a different side to them, or they may may have reasons, good mm -hmm. reasons for why they're doing what they're what they're doing. Um, but I, I I really struggle to find something um, good in Bidithal. Yeah, and it's it's one of the instances where I guess I actually did you know come down pretty heavily on one side of of the subject. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I try to avoid it as much as possible, but um, that was certainly one instance where uh, I guess my horror and revulsion that, that this, this particular practice is continuing to this day um, got to me. Yeah. Uh, Vignesh had a question. Do we see the new Coltane and his development anytime in the bigger Malazan series? Uh, you'd have to read some of Esleman, I think, to get an idea of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Matt says the Mincer joke payoff was so worth it. I, I, 
man i mean that, that was yeah holding the punchline that long was just uh, so much fun uh, every drop of chain of dogs humor was a, a desperately needed yeah. break yeah and, and if there had been too much it, it would not have had the same impact it had to be quite quite stingy in that area and you get a peek at hood uh, eric commented uh, from matt uh, benethal desperately needed to be carsed <laughs> could you please introduce carsa to malik Rao? oh you're being so mean to malik okay Uh, oh, Austin, our friend Austin's here. A tad wary of spoilers, but I can't help but be here for the wisdom of Mr. Erickson. No, oh, cool. thank there. you. I, I don't see myself as being particularly wise. So, <laughs> um, uh, Carso is going to Carso. Oh, and that, uh, and to... well, that's actually that's an interesting statement. That it, it's an indication then that there's a, I guess, a consistency to Carso that the reader gets and the reader understands. Um, so. I take that as, as a huge compliment, so much appreciated. I uh, had a comment from uh, from Nilfrog. Thank you, Nilfrog. Hi, folks. Th thoughts, on the, thoughts on this particular theme. It's not the gods that are important. It is the sleeping outside of oneself that gifts a moral with virtue. That sounds like a quote from somewhere, doesn't it? It does. You'll have to uh, ascribe that one, Nilfrog. And uh, thank you uh, for the comment and for the super chat. Our friend Daniel, uh, there is so much going on in, in a spoiler. Malazan is less than the spoilers you see in a movie preview. Yeah, there's, there's a lot, yeah. And our friend AP is here, Malik Rell of the Merciful, just a misunderstood puppy. Yeah, AP would say that. Yeah. <laughs> I have a, um, a another rabbit hole topic <laughs> to ask about that I've been thinking about a lot, which is... Um, Crocus, who is an outcutter, um, was he once um, allied with Opan, or was no. it the same relationship? Okay. Yeah, no, no, no alliance there at all. I mean, you'd be you'd be foolish to ever uh, ally with that particular uh, twin god, for sure. And then speaking of that, that's my, this is where my rabbit hole starts because they are Opan. Uh, there's two sides, uh, the lady who had, brings positive luck and the, the Lord who brings not so positive luck or negative. And um, so they're working together. So, but they're, you know, it can't be chance if they're making the decision on what's going to happen but then if they're constantly fighting then they're <clears throat> they're built on emotion so we're back to emotion again <laughs> you know that emotion does emotion guide luck or chance um and so i i've been wrestling with this whole idea and if it relates to crocus but now maybe um i don't know i i'm just sensing that um, you know, first there was Opan, now there's Cotillion. Neither is directly influencing Crocus, but they still have had important, um, an important impact on him. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, so I guess my main rabbit hole is when is it luck 
and when is it just the you know the whim of the lady or the lord well that's a good question um of course the, lady or the lord would certainly um be very happy to um, lay claim for virtually anything and everything that happens mm -hmm. um, and just as one one character may be pulled away from something bad the other another character is pushed into it so mm -hmm. they're at work everywhere um <clears throat> In terms of their role, it it begins it's it's already diminishing in the series, and and they become less um, less relevant. Okay. Someone else takes takes over that role, um, in many respects, uh, whom you will end up knowing as the errant. Um, and it's it's more it's more I guess a question of um, notions of of fate. And, and what is faded and what isn't um and cause and effect and these kind of things um so i guess in a way they personify the chaotic nature of, of the universe it can go either way at any time so i love that oh is it all right <clears throat> right was that, must, was that the beginning of a chapter? I don't remember it at all. I'm trying to remember. Right, okay. Um, so I wrote that, did I? Uh, <coughs> see what I mean? I mean, I don't know. Who was that guy? Who wrote that stuff? It's not me anymore. Well, there are certainly several gods or groups of gods in this book who... Um, seem to rule under false pretenses um i guess the seven would be uh, the mm -hmm. most obvious example um and there's this sort of like in in discussion about what a god's role should be um should there be sort of trying to take care of the people who are who are dedicated to them or should is it okay if they're just, you know, extracting services mm -hmm. from them as as the seven are doing? Um, I'm also thinking about Osric, who is seemingly the god of the uh, Taisleosan, but somehow seems okay with just having someone else do the, all the all the uh, all the work for him. Yeah, yeah. The relationship between um, that which is worshipped and the worshippers is is. Uh, it's going to be explored throughout the entire series for sure. Okay, so Nifarog is telling me that it's uh, one of the Jade Souls talking to Havork. Yeah, those conversations, um, yeah, those were interesting. Those were sort of this world intrusions um, into the Malazan world. Maybe I'm giving too much away there, but um, uh, and I can't tell you if, uh, if I'm actually quoting anybody else. I don't think so. But I may be quoting a particular philosophical um, position um, that I may have read somewhere here in this world. The the jade statues are some of the weirdest things that I've encountered in Malazan so far. Like I, after reading well, six of these books, I'm still so like it's so out there that I have no yeah. idea what's going on. Yeah, that sort of. Um, almost disembodied arguments that were going on. Um, 
thinking back, I was probably reading some of Ian M. Banks' culture novels at the time. And of course, the, uh, the AI ships have conversations like that all the time. So maybe there was an influence there. Uh, J.D. Reeson commented, uh, HOS really explored the daily life of a soldier without a battle. Enjoy the humor. Great. Cool. And uh, something that Layla and I talked about last time, I believe it was either the first video or the second about the women soldiers and the men soldiers being, oftentimes you forget what, what their genders are. So I really, really like that. There was something that we talked about. Uh, in the last discussion is that that was uh really like those those characters that you you forget whether they're men or women well i mean often i forgot i i you know i'd have to have lists <laughs> because the names just sort of come in and then the names arrive uh, and i uh, create the squad and even at by that point i do not even know what gender uh they happen to be just the names have arrived um and then i give them their their abilities and again, I, I, I don't ascribe gender until I'm actually forced to um, by putting them into the story. So, yeah, it's all sort of ability based more than anything else. Mm -hmm. uh, Matt, come into the Jade Soul scenes is the, is the trippy craziness <laughs> at the end of 2001 Space Odyssey. Yeah, yeah. Well, don't forget, I read a lot of, well, I read a lot of science fiction. But I read a lot of nonfiction, especially uh, philosophy, um, and and weird other shit. So uh, <laughs> it's not too surprising that that was trippy. I certainly struggle with the ending of that film as well. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah, who didn't? Uh, biggest bad was a fun to write. Uh, Korab, Bilhan. I... Yeah, yeah, he's almost. Um, almost a counterpoint to Carson in many ways, right? I mean, he's, he's similar to Carson now that I think about it. Um, almost a, a slightly different take on the Carson style character. Um, I mean, both were sort of initially founded upon uh, misplaced beliefs uh, in, in, in their leaders, gods, whatever you want to call them. Um, and there's an earnestness, earnestness to uh, to Korab, which uh, was certainly great fun to write. Um, and I mean, I do like going into characters and doing some stream of consciousness style writing. And his voice turned out to be a lot of fun. And especially, you know, I think after his his mushrooms or whatever he whatever he was taking at the time. Yeah, good fun. Eric brings up an interesting uh, point that I think uh, it's fresh in our minds because we've been reading uh, both series, but mm -hmm. it's interesting comparing the themes of worship and Malazan to Baker. Right. Yeah. Um, they're very different, those themes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Almost, yeah, opposites. Pretty much, I would think. Yeah. yeah. What do you think, <laughs> with uh, Baker being fresh in your mind, too? Man. Sorry. Oh, I was, I was seeing if Katerina had thoughts on that because we've oh, right. been reading the the series together. Mm. I think that that's a really hard question to answer on the spot. To be honest, <laughs> um, I think maybe Baker focuses on all the other things about faith besides 
actual faith or people believing in God. Mm. Um, and I mean, just the gods and 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 Malazan have, I think, play a very different role than they do in in, in Baker's work. Um, they're they're much more active and much more much more present um, in the scenes. Um, whereas in, in Baker, they remain very much mysterious for um, most of the books, I would say. But I have to do some heavy thinking to like give you a new, like give you like an answer that I would be actually uh, content with. Sorry, I mean, I know it's late for you. It's so what else springing on you? Uh, also, had a question. What's the weird other shit? Uh, you uh, you're quoting me, and I've already forgotten what I was saying. <laughs> oh, you said you uh, the stream of consciousness uh, portions that you like to write and kind of go off on. Um... Well, yeah. Doesn't he? Or has that not happened yet? Doesn't he get completely stoned at one point? Hiboric? No, Korab. Oh. Maybe not uh, yet. Not yeah, yet. I think also is asking, because uh, you said you, you read a lot of uh, weird other shit. Oh, other shit that yeah. way. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of stuff. Um, human evolution books, uh, cosmology, uh, quantum stuff. Um, I'm sort of all over the place. I'm rereading um, Julian Jaynes right now. Um, his book, The Origin of Origins of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind, which is one of my favorite titles ever. Um, it's a great book. It's a fabulous book. That's, wow, that's, thanks, uh, that's the next book. Yeah. Uh, JD, comments, you really create a lot of soldiers that we read, care a lot about, a lot about for them uh, to start as ability based. Very cool insight to your process. Well, the, the ability and their names, uh, quite often the name is, is something that really uh, sends me in a particular direction with that character. And um, sometimes the opposite of what the name implies, um, but it's still a direction that's, that's related to that name in some fashion. And then it's more a case of, uh, if I'm going to use them as a point of view, um, I sort of uh, step lightly to begin with, um, usually, until I, I kind of find my feet and, and figure out who they are and what they're up to. Um, other ones just blast their way onto the page and, and they're in place immediately. So it, it varies. Um, Matt's wondering if you have any other good, or what other good SSF uh, have you read this year? Um. All right, I'm going to go out on a real limb here. Um, I've been reading a self-published series, and um, uh, I guess it's uh, Amazon is, is publishing them. And I'm really, I'm, I'm really actually quite impressed. And the author's name is B.B. Larson, hmm. and the titles are all kind of Steel World, Dust World, Home World, Machine World, etc. And um, I'm ripping through them right now, and uh, I'm actually really um, the writing's the writing's good. Uh, the characterization's fantastic. It's sort of if you can imagine a Jack Reacher in space, you know, in, in a military setting. Um, it it's a good character and, and and quite consistent all the way through. So yeah, I've been having a blast with that stuff. Hmm. It was added to the list, and that that's a that's a lot of the weird shit he re also reads too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place when it comes to that stuff. 
And I did not forget your comment, Frank, if you're still here. Uh, which hockey teams do you cheer for? Uh, the Winnipeg Jets and the Edmonton Oilers. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. Uh, they're doing okay right now. That's okay. So uh, we don't want to keep you too long. Uh, Katarina, no, right. or, or Layla, did you have any any questions? That I I did. Yeah, I have a, a few actually. Cool. But one one I want to circle back to um, you know Phyllis and the Younger and Haboric and Haboric did heal. Um, is it Sibylla? Do I have her name right? Solara. Uh, Solara. Oh, Solara. He, he healed her, but. Um, in this book, anyway, he did not heal Phyllis and the Younger. And then um, now she, it seems she's, well, no, he's still with her. So he could still heal her, but that would under maybe undercut the reason Crocus or Cutter is with her. So, uh, he may not, have, I don't remember, but he may not be aware that she needs healing. Okay. You know, if, if there's no... Uh, obvious observable um, injury. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, there, there's there's plenty more to come uh, for that from that group of characters. You're going to meet them again. So. Yeah, and there seems to be a um, a significant significance of spiders. Like we have a spider with the snakes, um, you know, lure. I guess a spider who lures lures prey by pretending to have a be a snake, and then we have Iskrol Puss' wife who is um, a divers. Yeah, she's a divers uh, into spiders. Who can turn into spiders? So, I don't know. Is that a read and find out? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you're going to meet Hellion, or have you met Hellion yet? No, not sure. No, okay. no. Right. Okay. Wait till you meet Hellion. She'll tell you all about spiders. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't mind spiders. Um, spiders in the house, they, I, I, I never kill them. They go outside. I, I put them, you know, put the glass on top and postcard underneath and, and send them out. Um, I've had a pet tarantula when I was much younger mm. in university, a uh, Mexican red and black tarantula named Quiche Lorraine. And, and she used to escape everywhere. She just, she would escape, get out of the, you know, the aquarium and I'd have to hunt through the house until I found her. So I like spiders. Me too. We have uh, orb weavers here in Missouri. Where yes, they, of course. They weave those giant webs and just sit there and I love them. I mean, you know, yeah, I mm. wouldn't want to be bitten by a spider, but um, yeah. Oh, like, that, yeah. Yeah. It was a spider bite that, that at least to my mind, came as close to killing me as anything I've experienced before. And that was in Mongolia. Yeah. Mm. Even though there's not supposed to be any venomous spiders in Mongolia. Take it from me, there is. <laughs> yeah. Uh, another question I have is uh, what I've missed the significance of diamonds, like significance to Israel Pust and why Callum brought them why Cotillion couldn't just give them to Iskrel Puss himself? Or am I mixing up the chain of um, possession of the diamonds? 
You know what? I don't even remember. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Other people are going to have to weigh in on that one. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think one other just idea that's hanging out in the back of my mind is the characterization of Lacine, because we only really know Lacine from a little, you know, a bit in Gardens of the Moon, but I was not aware at that time as mm -hmm. much as I am now. Mm -hmm. And now she almost seems to be, I'm going back to the whole you know, thing about luck and fortune, just, um, you know, very, uh, it's very unpredictable. Um, and she seems to have schemes within schemes. And it's really her influence that is causing all of this other mayhem to go on, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I just find that very fascinating that, um, when okay for example when tavor uh or tavore uh sent felison to the mines um and you know did all she did to her family her parents um lacine would have already known that gano's parent was not uh had not dishonored his family i, I mean she had to have known that so, well, hard to say, right? I mean, um, quite often what happens to, to somebody who's at the, the very top of, of the hierarchy mm -hmm. is information has to go through many filters to reach them and may never reach them. Um, not only that, uh, you know, the, the triggering of the act of the um, nobility cull, uh, it's not the first time that's happened in the empire. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it acquires its own momentum for sure so tavor had basically you know two options right either um kill her sister or um send her away and yeah. by sending her away she at least gave her the chance um and she put things in place to to assist in that matter it was the best she could do yeah yeah, you'll see more of the scene, um, especially in the Bone Hunters. Yeah, I just found it fascinating that you know, like Lestara was saying, I'm going to be loyal to the Empress, and everyone's talking about loyalty, and yet we we haven't seen the the Empress, we haven't seen the impact of whether she cares about the loyalty or not. And I guess I was using the example of the Perrin family. Mm -hmm. To kind of make that, make those assumptions. If yeah. paying attention to them, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing with it is really a reversal of a lot of what you see in in, in uh, sort of Eurocentric medieval epic fantasies, where um, the story is is very much focused on on those people in power. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, most of us live our lives. Um, nowhere near those people in power and yet their decisions their actions and inactions have this it's not just a trickle-down effect it's an avalanche effect and um and, but i want to be down there on the ground you know and that experience of things where you don't have the answers to these questions you don't know the motivations of of your rulers you don't know to the extent to which they're compromised um or whether they're ethical or not but you have to deal and live with the consequences mm -hmm. 
that's so interesting. That's, um, you know, there's this kind of shifting gears for a minute, but there's this whole thing in, in history, you know, now or over the last 30 years, I guess, you know, the history from below and Postal history. Yeah. 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 Micro history and that kind of thing where you're looking at the lives of individual people and this, I'm kind of relating that to this now too. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I mean, it was long overdue in terms of, of history. Uh, it was one of my minors uh, was history and uh, social history is, is uh, yeah, it's where to me, it's where the interesting stuff is because it, it's, it's on a human scale as opposed to a monumental or um, uh, imperial uh, scale, which yeah. is, you know, a, a different kind of history and doesn't really take you anywhere. Um, it's just basically succession of rising and falling of empires you know and it's like okay that's done now what um so it takes uh social historians um cultural anthropologists and that kind of thing to uh really start examining um some of the assumptions that we've made regarding our past and um and kind of dismantling those assumptions which is you know long overdue for sure mm -hmm. yeah <clears throat> Uh, Judy Reason had a question. Uh, what are your and Eslamont's most fleshed out characters before you decided to create the books? Um, <laughs> most fleshed out. If I had to guess, this is going to sound weird. Um, Anamander Rake. Um, some of Kaladin Brood, I think, on my part. And for Cam, it would have been uh, Osric. Osric. Um, I'm trying to think if there were, well, no. Uh, okay. Obviously, uh, cotillion or dancer and, and woo Kellenbed. Yeah. They, they, they were, they were there at the beginning. Well, almost the beginning. That's a great question. Um, <laughs> here's a writing question relating to that. How, um, do you ever find yourself, uh, writing autobiographically in a character you know because when they say when and it's true when you first start writing you tend to be autobiographical mm -hmm. in your writing people do um so you do you find yourself having to step back at a certain time and saying no this character would make this decision it's not the decision i would make you know how um how i certainly try to okay it's funny because I'm actually writing uh, about this in the, in my book on writing right now. Um, and it's one of the things where fiction deviates from reality uh, to a large extent, but it's, it's expected to, and that is the notion of consistent characters mm -hmm. because there's an expectation among readers when you're reading a book that, you know, the character needs to be consistent throughout the story. Now mm -hmm. they can be, uh, evolving, they can be, you know, um, changing in that respect, but that at, at some core level, they are consistent. The reality is none of us are consistent. We are, mm -hmm. we are profoundly inconsistent as, as individuals and we can carry contradictory notions in our heads and we're perfectly, at least I'm perfectly comfortable with that, mm -hmm. um, in my own mind. So it is kind of a, a conceit, um, to think in terms of characterization and consistency within a story. But at the same time, stories often need that. 
And so you, you, you kind of have to, you have to walk that, that tightrope on these things and, and allow your characters enough room um, to do, you know, batshit crazy stuff that is just not, not consistent with who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they can then turn around and give you a reason for why they did it, then it should stand. It should be part of the story. Um, now, in terms of autobiographical, no, I would say I may use particular details to add verisimilitude uh, to the set, the scene uh, that I'm writing, um, which we all have to do. I mean, it's what we what we've observed of our world um, that we make use of in, in creating our fictional worlds. So, uh, what else could we do, mm-hmm. right? Um, so there may maybe small elements uh, and, and some sort of little autobiographical tidbits here and there, um, and uh, those will show up. But generally, uh, I really I, I, I want to sink into the characters and the world uh, as much as I possibly can, mm-hmm. and, um, and then I'm just sort of um, yeah I'm throwing on various masks and um, living out those roles. Uh, do you want to come on to that? I tend to enjoy characters that are inconsistent at times. Contradictions seem realistic. Yes, I agree. Absolutely, Joanna. Yeah. And, you know, characters that are constantly consistent, they can get pretty boring, right? And, you know, everybody else around them will be able to predict pretty easily what they're going to do, which is, seems to be a, um, a not a good survival uh, tactic. <laughs> <laughs> it's like in fencing, right? You know, when I was fencing, if I got fell into any kind of pattern of movement or, or, or pacing or, um, you know, two steps advancing, one retreating and then counterattacking and that kind of stuff, I'd be toast, right? You've got to break everything up. You cannot be consistent. You cannot be predictable. Um, and you cannot fall into those rhythms. So, I mean, sword fighting alone should tell you that. Um, uh, keep, you know, don't become predictable in, in any respect. Uh, Matt commented, I don't know if there was a reason, but Kalam had no, had to use the diamond before he gave some of them to Pust. Yeah, I, you may well be right, Matt. I have no memory of that subplot at all. So, GD uh, Raising, uh, Lacine figured someone should be in power. If the Emperor doesn't seem to care, you got to read some Messelmont. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, she plays a huge role in uh, Return of the Crimson Guard. Yeah. Mm. Uh, also, what do you think of the book Dawn of Everything? Oh, man, it's one of my favorite books. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that's um, David Graeber, who recently passed away, and David Wingrove, um, an archaeologist and an anthropologist, completely dismantling uh, the paradigm of the rise of uh, civilization. Fabulous, fabulous stuff. My my reading schedule is getting pretty pretty <laughs> passionate with this conversation. <laughs> That's part it sounds of the fun. fascinating, though. That it does. Hmm. What? No, it sounds fascinating. Oh, it is. It yeah. is. Yeah, David Graeber also did one. I think ten thousand years of death. Uh, he talks about the history of death. D E B T. Also fantastic. Writing these down. Yeah. um before we go um i may just want to go very quickly back to felicin once more Mm -hmm. um because she's just such a wonderful fascinating character 
I absolutely adore her in, in Dead House Gates. And she went on a terrible, but mm -hmm. what a journey she, she, she goes through in, in, in that book. And the way, the way Dead House Gates ends, um, you know, I, I was, and maybe I was, well, obviously I was naive in thinking that, you know, she, um, by becoming the Shaikh, she was giving this, she was given this, this new opportunity to, to, as we sort of talk about, reinvent herself mm -hmm. and maybe sort of come into her own. Um, and it was very, it was very disheartening to then see her as the Shaikh in, in uh, House of Chains. Um, and to see that, you know, just despite all the trauma, like what would really happen is just the, the goddess of, eventually takes over her and she has very little agency once again. Yeah. Um, so I was wondering if was, was that always the ending you had intended for, for Felicin or was there ever yeah. hope that, you know, <clears throat> she might find some peace? Well, uh, I don't, I mean, maybe she did find peace in the end, um, but the, the clash between, the sisters was always going to be the, the end of the fourth book. Um, and there were a number of reasons for that. One, um, things that, things that I ramped things up a fair bit with Dead House Gates and its conclusion, right? So you think it's sort of um, kind of monumental in terms of the involvement of, of everything. So huge scale. And then I felt in, in Memories of Ice, I actually upped it yet again, one more time. Um, but I didn't want, did not want to fall into that pattern of going for the, the, the great spectacle uh, at the end of every book. So I thought with the fourth book, I would completely inverse it. And I'd go back to uh, a lot of what inspired me to start in all of this stuff, which was, of course, the Iliad. And um, you know, you can look at the Iliad in, in terms of the, the, the huge siege uh, on, on a grand scale, but the story itself is not about that siege. It's about the individuals um, and their contests and their fights and ultimately Achilles and, and Priam. So I, that's what I was trying to echo with this one. Is this was going to come down to two people on a field uh, between two armies and deciding everything at that point. Um, so yeah, it was turning the focus, uh, turning it around, um, just to sort of, I guess, not fall into a particular pattern of uh, storytelling uh, and structure. Um, and then of course I realized that I needed to make sure that Tavor never knew who it was that she killed. So uh, that was the other side of things. And in terms of the control of, of the goddess uh, over, over uh, Felicin, um that control slips briefly um and that's kind of what sort of leads to her her demise um, she has a moment when she's she finds herself again and to me i needed that for the tragic aspect of things uh for that conclusion um but yeah it, it was certainly going for um a kind of a messy ending you know in in that respect it was it was heartbreaking to read and i'm i'm sad for sad about how felicin ends up but well at least i'm happy that we have her as a character okay well remember that scene 
and put that scene on a shelf uh, mm -hmm. and get back to me when you're reading um, towards the end of The Crippled God. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it in mind. Yes. No, you know, some of um, that too, I, I see in a, uh, a loose parallel, I guess, to the Bedithal death in that, you know, no matter how deserving we might be, you know, maybe this is the grim dark side of me coming out, no matter how bad you are or how deserving you are, it, you know, nothing ever wraps up neatly. No. I think that's what I'm getting at, no. you know, and because I saw Fellison as a, uh, I still do as um, a, a tragic and heroic figure. I mean, she went through a lot and survived mm -hmm. and, um, you know. Yeah, uh, and, and that, that survival legacy lives on in the renamed uh, daughter, right, Fellison. Right. So name carries on, yeah. Yeah. I think my last question uh, is, uh, will we see Grub again? <laughs> yeah. Read we'll and find Grub. out. Okay. <laughs> it looked like the promise was there. Mm. So. Um, but not in the way you expect. So. Okay. But take that take that as a given, right? You know. Yeah. It, it's it's it, it won't be in the way you expect things. Um, that's kind of the rule throughout the entire series, actually. Yeah. But, you know, he basically has given the bone hunters their name, mm -hmm. you know, by his original innocent act with mm -hmm. the, the thigh bone. Yeah. So. Yeah. The time always flies on these. It <laughs> Look does. Up, yeah, it just flies by. But uh, we, we know you're very busy. We really appreciate you taking time to come and oh, it's been fun with us. Yeah. It's good fun. Yeah. Well, well uh, I look forward to hearing your comments on Midnight Tides, for sure. Mm -hmm. Talk about messy endings. Yeah, you just wait. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Layla, if, if, oh, I'm sorry, Katerina, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. No, go ahead. <laughs> I was just going to say, was just going to thank uh, Mr. Erickson for, for, joining, for joining us and allowing us to ask all these questions. And uh, yeah, I'm also curious what you think of Midnight Tides, because I've already read it, and that's mm -hmm. it's one of my favorites. So, all right, cool. Um, okay, it's pretty about it's your standalone, isn't it? It's quite self-contained that book, I think, in many respects. Yeah. Yeah, I think you could possibly even re read it before reading any of the other mm -hmm. books, and it might still work. Yeah. yeah. yeah and it's quite yeah. different uh, from the from the other four as well. Yeah, a bit more deliberately Shakespearean, I think, in many respects. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, I'm looking forward to it mm -hmm. now. Good stuff. Uh, so, uh, Layla, if someone wants to get in touch with you, where's the best place to find you? Um, I guess Twitter now, either my regular El Goshi or Valadi uh, Magazine now. Nice. Yeah, new uh, new channel launched. I'll be sure and add that down to the description. Everybody could go check it out. And uh, Mr. Erickson, where's the best place for people to find your work? Um bookstores uh, <laughs> right now uh, I'm occasionally putting an essay up on my uh, Erickson Facebook page so I have the introduction to the to book on writing is, is up there right now oh nice yeah. cool. 
And Katerina, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, you'll find me on the page chewing forum. And uh, I'm also on Instagram at uh, the errand. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, might, might, have, might have stolen that one from you. <laughs> no, yeah, uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, how far along are you again? You finished the Bone Hunters, is that right? I finished the Bone Hunters, yes. Right, yeah. You might end up changing your handle at some point. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I, I thought I thought it sounded more interesting than just using my name, but okay. Right. Well, I might I might have to rebrand myself again. You might have to, yeah. yeah. And for for everyone here, the um, <laughs> we are continuing to read the series. So if you want to join us or join the conversation, we are on the page two in forum. Be sure and check that out and come by. Uh, I'm not sure the format we'll continue with. We were trying a book at a time, but we'll we'll be figuring that out here soon, just to kind of uh, get our strategy down. But anyone's welcome to join. And uh, come and chat about the series with us. So thanks again to everyone in the chat. Really appreciate everyone coming by to to talk with us. It always adds to the to the experience. So thanks a lot for coming by and, and asking a bunch of great questions. And we'll see everyone next time. Hope everyone has a great uh, great weekend. Bye.